From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, filling in for your regular host, Joel McCower, who is off talking up one of his favorite personal projects, a new documentary to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Woodstock Music Festival. On this week's edition, why Adobe is constructing an all-electric building at its San Jose, California headquarters site, we analyze California's emissions deal with some of the world's biggest automakers, plus we chat with Monique Oxender, the Chief Sustainability Officer of the newly combined Keurig Dr. Pepper. All this and more this week on 350. It's August 2nd, 2019. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me from the Green Biz headquarters in downtown Oakland, California is Katie Fehrenbacher, Senior Writer and Transportation Analyst for Green Biz Group. Hello, Katie. Hi, Heather. How are you? I'm fine. You're hiding out in one of those fancy little phone booths, aren't you? I am. I managed to get some space in a phone booth. Our team here has been growing a lot over the last year, so managed to find an open booth Happy to be here on the show this week. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have you. Thank you for agreeing to fill in. I'm wondering what you're working on this week. I know you've been busy, so give me a, give me a hint about what you got cooking. Yes, very busy. Uh, we've all been busy here. All the co-chairs <laughs> for the Verge conference uh, kind of starting to ramp up and confirming as many speakers as we can. I think we're about three months out um, until Verge 19, and so all the co-chairs of I'm doing transportation, but energy, carbon removal, and circular economy. So the four of us have been kind of frantically starting to confirm speakers and starting to lock down our uh, sessions and breakout sessions. And so, um, but we're in a good place. We're all we're getting really excited about mm -hmm. the event. So I'm I believe the number. I know we're more than a hundred. I think we're close to 110 speakers, mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing for an yeah. event that far out. Um, anything you're particularly, um, I mean, you're excited about all your babies, I'm sure, in all, the, all <laughs> so your sessions, so but um, anything in particular that you're, you know, you're, you're very excited about this week? Yes, um, there's a couple things. One of them, let's see, actually, I'm going to do three. One of them is um, the summit. So we're this year for the transportation summit, we're working with CalStart and they have this zero, um, drive to zero emission vehicle program that they've been working on for the past year. And so we're using their program as a framework to discuss how to accelerate the adoption of commercial zero emission vehicles in California. And so I'm really excited about having a really strong framework to build on top of for that event. Um, and then also uh, I'm building a tutorial around how to decarbonize shipping across modes, um, largely looking at maritime and air. So that could be, a, it'll be a really exciting one for retailers to learn about how to um, decarbonize um, emissions from their shipping supply chain. And then finally, I'm building a fleet workshop. So for fleet managers to learn how to buy um, low carbon and electric fleet vehicles across heavy duty fleets. So trucks and buses and pickup trucks and those kind of things. And um, so I'm building a workshop around that and I'm starting to bring in um, a bunch of really great speakers for that. So yeah, it's going to be a big program, but, um, but excited about it this year. Well, super. And uh, for our listeners, take a look at the program. It is building. There's some really great speakers that are being confirmed and, you know, that's, that's three months from now, but Let's pause a moment and talk about the week in review. 
So Katie, I, I, I think I'd love to start with one of the pieces that you wrote this week. Um, the, the headline, Six Takeaways from the Emissions Deal Between Automakers and California. This headlines your, your newsletter this week. What's going on? Mm-hmm. So it was a really big deal. So what happened is there's been this huge battle um, between the Trump administration and California over um, California's emission standards for vehicles. Um, so essentially, the Trump administration has been trying to roll back the Obama um, vehicle emission standard that was already been implemented, and California has been trying to um, maintain it and um, work with the automakers to try to move forward um, while the Trump administra- administration has been trying to stop it and halt it. Um, and what happened was um, the California Air Resources Board, CARB, um, kind of did this really interesting like backroom deal with the auto companies, Ford, Honda, BMW, and Volkswagen. Um, and they agreed without kind of going rogue around the federal government um, they agreed on fuel economy increases for new vehicles to nearly 50 miles per gallon by model year 2026. So it was a little bit of a concession below the Obama emissions deal. But um, but the fact that California now has this insurance policy of working with um, these huge automakers uh, means that potentially this will the emissions um, standard will move forward and be stronger despite the fact that the Trump administration um, has been trying to stop it. And is it actually the remind me are, is the government suing California to try to prevent it from doing stuff like this? So like is this is this a done deal or could this get derailed by the people in the White House? <laughs> I mean just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean it'll be a long battle uh, between California and the and the federal government right now. Um, the California has a unique position where um, uh, it is able to set its own emission standards. So basically the automakers um, want to work with California because they don't want to mm-hmm. make two types of cars for one for California and then one for the, the right. rest of the U.S. So it actually saves them um, a lot of money if they can unify the standard and just make one vehicle for the whole U.S. market. So it's actually a a strategic business decision for them um, in part. Uh, So, But this could be a long, drawn-out battle Mm -hmm. between the federal government and California. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I ask one last question on this. I noticed that there's a couple of names absent from this uh, deal, if you want to call it that way, uh, General Motors and Fiat Chrysler. Mm -hmm. So is is that worrisome? Um, I think this is actually that the um, automakers, some of them have done this deal with California, will put pressure on GM and Fiat Chrysler to potentially uh, join the agreement. Um, It is only the four automakers make up um, about 30% of the market, so they do need um, more players involved to make this deal more robust. Um, but you know, it's like I said in my piece, there's a couple things going on here. The business world has largely accepted that climate change is happening. So the fact that the automakers don't want to be, um, on the wrong side of history, um, and they can't really hide from reality anymore. But despite that, the sustainability aspect, the business world also doesn't like uncertainty. So they don't want to be caught in the middle of a battle between California and the white house. Um, and so in some way or other, the other automakers are going to have to figure out what they want to do. And I think that this will actually potentially persuade them to, to join the deal. 
Well, let's move on to another story that both both of us loved <laughs> this week. We both thought it was really cool. Um, and it is by um, the Verge Energy Chair and Senior Energy Analyst Sarah Golden and has to do with Adobe's bold plan to build an all-electric building. I love this story because um, it's, it's a trend that we're hearing more about, companies that are that are trying to look at making commercial buildings all electric. As we know, the, um, the, the one big concern is that thermal loads are being handled by natural gas. So heating and cooling and cooking, right? But we're trying to mitigate the use of natural gas, uh, part, partly because of, well, for many reasons, but partly because of the methane emissions potential. So this, is a sort of a stake in the ground to say, hey, um, we're gonna we're gonna build a building and um, we're gonna build it all electric. And I, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about this is is Adobe actually doesn't really know what technologies it's gonna mm-hmm. use yet. Like yeah. they're they're gonna they just said, you know what, we're gonna do this and we're gonna go out and figure out how to do this. Um, so that takes a lot of courage in my mind. Um, I'm just curious, I, since you pointed to this story too, when we were trying to figure out what to chat about, you know, what was it that intrigued you the most about this? Yeah, um, I think it's a fascinating trend of um, companies, particularly you know, Silicon Valley tech companies, trying to go all electric with their buildings. Because like you said, it is such a new phenomenon and it is so difficult. Um, I know Google had, has also been working on trying to do an all-electric building for a new campus um, in San Francisco. Ah. And, um, and I had talked to the, the Google engineer who had worked on the project, and he said the same thing. They, um, you know, just kind of were throwing things at the wall to, to figure out, you know, what would be the best way. And just there is no blueprint for how to do this right now. Um, and so they're kind of learning by doing. And then... You, they really are excited to share lessons learned once they have a successful plan and, um, you know, learn how to make it more economic for the next one. But in particular, I thought it was interesting that vehicles aren't necessarily in discussion um, right now for Adobe. I, I mean, I didn't do the interview, um, but, you know, they're they're not necessarily talking about, okay, we're going to electrify our building and then, you know, our shuttle buses will plug into the building and, you know, you know, yada, 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 and we'll use, you know, batteries to power the employee um, electric vehicles that commute to the building. So I thought, I think it would be a really interesting next step for these companies to think holistically about electrifying buildings and electrifying vehicles and transportation for employees and um, the company at the same time. Right. Well, thank you for bringing the Google thing to my attention. I forgot about that one. Um, This also, this reminds me, and, and now I'm thinking out loud here, of Salesforce, when they went and did the, the, this big water, um, they're using in, in their building in San Francisco, the entirely circular water system, right? And they had to go to another country to find that technology. So I'll, I'm wondering out loud if there will be stuff coming from international um, markets that might help solve this issue. That should that could be really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another good point is also these have to be new buildings, largely. So it's really much more difficult to retrofit the building to make it electric. Right. Um, so a lot of this, yeah, depends on a company that has enough money, has really strong sustainability goals, and are actively building new buildings to house um, employees. So not a huge um, section of the population right now. Right. Well, moving on to our next story. I have a question for you, Katie. Mm-hmm. 
Have you ever had an impossible burger? <laughs> I have, actually. Um, I've had some really good ones and some really bad ones. So um, I think it really depends on how they cook the burger. Um, <laughs> I, this is coming from someone who has not been eating actual burgers for um, the past 20 years. So I can't really make a great comparison to whether it tastes as good as a beef burger or not. But I had one that was absolutely delicious in San Francisco. Um, I think the place was called Zero Zero. When the Impossible Burger first came out, they had this strategy of working with higher end restaurants and having them put it on their menu where their chef would make like a fancy version. Um, so I had one of those and it was absolutely delicious. Huh. Are you, are you vegetarian? I'm not fully vegetarian. I eat fish, but um, I just haven't eaten beef in a very long time. Right. The reason I brought this up, dear listeners, is because uh, our, our uh, circularity analyst, Lauren Phipps, who directs um, the Circularity Conference and handles the program at Verge uh, for circular, circular Economy Issues, wrote a piece um, that poses this question, is an impossible burger circular? And uh, it just went, it was actually a question I've been kind of wondering in the back of my mind about alternative proteins because there's this sort of obvious tension playing out between those of us who believe we should go completely vegan, completely plant-based, um, that it's the way to save the world, it's the way to, to really um, cut back on, on the deforestation that's happening and, and mitigate the impacts of raising animals for food consumption, like cattle and, and chickens and, and so forth. And um, she's got a really interesting piece sort of that poses the question of, you know, the impact of these things on the environment and, and the sort of link to food waste. That's one thing that I, that I found particularly fascinating. If there's, um, if the land is being used better, the, the food is being grown and, and being used more, more wisely throughout the entire consumption cycle, you know, from farm to table. And so it's just, a, it's a great it was just a great question that I, I thought, ooh, you know, this is going to get conversation going. So I'm just curious, you know, what, what in your mind are you thinking when you read this story, Katie? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think just the fact that um, alternative proteins and meats are show such promise, but at the same time, they're not the solution for everything. Um, I think when I think about um, these the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat, um, at the same time that they're plant-based, so they're healthier in certain ways, I think about how processed they are. You know, there's this whole movement to go f towards whole foods um, and that kind of thing. And so raw, right, yep. move mm -hmm. away from mm -hmm. unprocessed, you want like, yeah, mm -hmm. natural foods. Um, and so these are really processed mm -hmm. uh, products. So from just a straight health perspective, I'm always a little bit mixed on whether I really like um, these alternative proteins just for myself for eating or not. But I totally agree. I think that it's it's great that these are available and will be great for um, for populations to move more off of um, eating animal animal meat. Um, and that's great for resource efficiency um, and and health. But I think as the piece suggests, I think their plant-based meats are just one piece of the evolving tapestry of technologies, as she puts it. Right. I'd like to round out our week in review with another circular story. It's about the unicorn IPO of The Real Real. 
um, and what it says about the circular economy for fashion. And it was written by our associate editor, Holly Seekin. So, hey, all four of our stories were from Greenvis staffers, all women. So, woohoo! Yeah, yeah. Nice. nice, awesome. Um, and and so, uh, for those of you listening who who aren't really familiar with the term unicorn, Katie and I are excruciatingly familiar with that term, but it's a a startup <laughs> yes. um, valued at one billion dollars um, in terms of its funding model. Um, and so, you know, basically when the venture funds go in, it's the valuation that the company would have. And uh, uh, the Real Real, which is a, a, a circular economy company that, that sort of handles high-end garments and so forth, as so sort of a, a digital consignment shop, if you will, they uh, went public and uh, shot up right to around $2.5 billion. And when I checked the, the, the stock price this week, they were a little bit below that, but still quite, quite, you know, quite substantially more than a billion. So definitely a unicorn, probably a double unicorn, if you will. <laughs> and um, what, what, you know, there's there's been some companies, several companies have gone public this season um, that all in the sharing and um, circular circular kind of model. So aside from the real real, we had Uber and Lyft. Um, I'm sure you have some comments about that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got Airbnb. Um, but the point being that, this model seems to have some legs that it, it it's it's got mainstream appeal that this idea of this sharing of recirculating goods of some sort in this particular you know instance apparel that it that it's catching on and so this is um I think one of the things I really appreciate about this sort of analysis of what's going on is the fact that these these ideas and these trends is particularly with the the passing on of goods is really resonating, especially with urban, young urban folks that um, mm-hmm. may not have the storage capacity to own things for very long and want to kind of move things out as they, as they move new things in. Um, and sort of, so they appeal to, you know, a ma- more mainstream consumer than, than possibly the, the people that are just thinking green. So this was, was intriguing to me. Um, any thoughts, Katie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, I must confess, when I read the article, I was sad that I had never heard of or used the real real. Um, though I am a big fan of thrift store shopping in the real world, but I uh, I think it's just kind of fascinating that um, consumer tastes are changing so much. And you know, some of the other companies that went public, like Lyft and Uber, those are you know very largely for urban areas or Airbnb as well. But the interesting thing about the real real is that. Um, you know, I think it spreads a little bit outside of the strictly urban environment, um, you know, into suburbia and, and places where, you know, people just want access to um, lower cost, um, high end goods. And um, so that's a trend where I think it's it's spreading out a little bit more to the mainstream past just the kind of hardcore um, urban environment. So I think that's an interesting trend as well. Right. Bain and company estimates that the luxury secondhand goods market, a.k.a. the consignment market, <laughs> um, could be worth $25 billion. So, and actually, that's, that's yeah, I mean, that's pretty big. Um, and I yeah. think probably, you know, to round out this segment, it's worth noting that it's not just you know, these kind of, un, you know, unknown necessarily startups that are doing this, these, these, um, these folks that are coming from, a new place. It, there, we've got some pretty big companies that are 
testing this sort of model. Um, we've talked in the past about REI, which is, is really working on sharing and re-commercing models. Patagonia, of course, like Eileen Fisher is also, mm-hmm. and Stella McCartney. So there are some pretty well-known brands um, that are working on this sort of model. And I think this is just a wonderful uh, el- illustration of the fact that when, when people think about economics and making this appealing to everyone, that that's when things catch on, that they have a great sustainability benefit, but aren't necessarily marketed in that way. Merging two multi-billion dollar organizations is never an easy feat. So I was somewhat surprised in June when Keurig Dr. Pepper disclosed its unified corporate responsibility agenda barely one year after the merger of the two previously separate companies that share its name. As you might expect, the list of commitments being trumpeted by the $11 billion coffee and beverage organization includes goals that existed previously, plus some primarily to do with packaging, that are entirely new. In my mind, here are five of the most notable aspirations, all of which are pegged to a 2025 timeframe. A pledge to convert to 100% recyclable or compostable packaging, a promise to send zero waste to landfill, a commitment to use 100% renewable energy, an operational goal to improve water use efficiency by 20%, and an aspiration to replenish 100% of the water used for its beverages in, quote, the highest water risk communities, end quote, in which Keurig Dr. Pepper does business. With 2020 just around the corner, I'm in the middle of reporting a longer-term feature about how companies are thinking about their next set of sustainability goals. And with that in mind, I recently spoke with Monique Oxender, who was named as Chief Sustainability Officer for the Combined Companies, about a wide range of topics related to Keurig Dr. Pepper's new, quote, drink well, do good, end quote, CR initiative, as well as the backstory for how the latest goals were set. Here's what Oxender had to say about how the integration process played out. So we integrated everything um, from from the ground up. It is, you know, I think there's a tendency to want to refer to legacy this and legacy that and two different sides of the business. But um, that has not been the approach that we've taken. We've really pulled everything together. And that common vision is you're making a positive impact with every drink. Um, we did this whole process by starting with engagement on, you know, what does the operational plan look like? What are the innovation priorities? And then what are these really unique areas where we can deliver positive impact? And let's bring all of that together and recalibrate. I also asked Oxender for her philosophy about the aspiration of sustainability goals. In other words, whether it's better to set targets for incremental improvements or whether her team is pushing the company to reach for milestones that may be out of reach. Not surprisingly, Keurig Dr. Pepper's new strategy includes a bit of both. But Oxender wants to move quickly, and the company's pledges reflect that. Here is a snippet from our conversation. Within the beverage industry, the bar has already been set quite high. And so to strive to that bar, at least, is important. But so much of what we do in terms of sustainability and driving for positive impact 
needs to move to collective action. It needs to move there quickly because the size of the change that needs to happen is significant, be it in packaging or in water or in any impact area. So it's within our planning process, it has been really important to understand where the industry is headed and to make sure that we are not only tracking to that direction, but where we can lead that, we're also leading. And it's not just then looking at companies and where companies are headed, but take that up a level, where are the industry collaborations, be it the, you know, the membership organizations or the voluntary kind of uh, collective platforms, what goals do they have and where are they headed? And then other organizations like NGOs and, and pseudo-governmental organizations as well, where are they headed? I think you have to look at that entire landscape because if you singularly look at your own company and what you are capable of, you're drawing a limit that won't likely be enough over time. You have to look at the larger landscape and, and look at all of those other entities as partners in ultimately achieving where you all need to go together. that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organizations, stories, and events mentioned in this episode. And while you're on the site, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. You'll also want to make sure you're subscribed to our portfolio of weekly newsletters, including thematic updates on our core coverage areas like... Katie's analysis of transportation trends, plus updates on the circular economy, energy, and the sustainability profession. And of course, I'd be remiss not to make a special plug for Verge Weekly, edited on alternate weeks by yours truly. A huge thanks to Katie for joining me this week as co-host. Joel McCower and I will be back next week. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>